Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 37 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week? Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Thank you. I'm off deadline. Hurrah! Uh, Which means I've had some time to pop down to Longbenton and take a look at the new Swift store that's just opened. We talked about this uh, on last week's episode. It was just about to open then. Um, I've had a look at it. Really, really interesting. I was very interested to see what they've done in terms of merchandising chilled and frozen products side by side. Uh, So some of the themes that we talked about on the podcast last week certainly feel like they have been implemented there. Um, Really impressive. What have you been up to? I'm excited you've been. I know excited is in the northeast as well. Um, I have been to my first face-to-face business meeting uh, in six months yesterday, uh, which was an absolute treat. And as much as I'm a a fan of Zoom, it was amazing to to get out and see a CEO of uh, a meat processor, one of the PLCs. And it's great just to be in the room and and chatting about business, which is uh, it's so much easier when you're face-to-face and also a mean bacon and egg sandwich, which I thoroughly enjoyed. That sounds like a good deal to me. Great deal. Worth a trip. Uh, We have got a brilliant guest this week, haven't we? Yes, we have. We're joined by Chris D. Chris was formerly CEO of Booths and Director of Food and Home at Harrods, and now he's a startup founder and entrepreneur, including at MaltReleaseRadar.com, which is a business that focuses on rare whiskies. On top of that, he's also an advisor and non-exec chairman to a wide range of businesses. Chris has so much knowledge, experience, expertise around food retail, so it was fascinating to get his take on what's happening in the market and, of course, see what he's reading at the moment. We loved it. Uh, just before we start the show, a reminder, we're on Instagram, the Picklist Podcast, so please do like and share some of our posts. It's great to get your feedback on the show. Let's start. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Now, I don't think there'll be many listeners who don't know who you are, but for the one or two who've been living behind a rock, why don't you tell us who you are and how you're connected to the food and drink industry? Okay, so I'm Chris D. Um, I'm actually now an online startup founder, entrepreneur um, in the world of collectible whiskey. So um, a departure from quite a lot of what I've done during my career. Um, but basically at the moment building um, a couple of different um, businesses online. One one is a community driven around whiskey, all about alerting um, consumers to new releases. And the other is a platform for people to be able to trade those bottles when they get them. Um, Alongside that, I also act as an advisor and non-exec chairman to a number of um, challenger brands in the FMCG space and a couple of retailers as well. And then, probably um, better known for being uh, a former shopkeeper. Um, uh, most recently was food and home director at Harrods and uh, before that chief exec at Booths. Now, before we jump into your article choices, we do want to quiz you a little bit about what you've seen in the past 12 months, uh, because it's just been such an extraordinary time for, for food and drink and for retail in general. What do you think are the most significant changes that are going to shape and change the way grocery retail operates um, permanently? The, the stuff that isn't just a short term change in response to COVID, but will have you know, moved uh, the, the needle permanently? Yeah, I mean, obviously, start out with all the obvious stuff around um, um, the, the the channel shifts and 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 the and the habits that we we appear to have seen um, change amongst consumers. And I think you know that inevitably that's going to play out over the years to come. Um, I'm a great believer that um, habits stick, and I do think, therefore, that broadly, my view is that an awful lot of what we've seen change um, will be permanent change. So I don't think we'll go back um, in many areas. 
Um, and I think therefore, um, you know, and, I, and it's been interesting because part of my background recently has been around hospitality as well as, as well as retail. And I think um, the hospitality industry has obviously gone through a massive shock, but has actually quite interestingly responded entrepreneurially and, and found new ways through. And I think a lot of the additional incremental business that hospitality has seen through meal kits or through online ordering or whatever it is through delivery, et cetera, I think a lot of that will stick. And I think that's going to be genuine incremental business for restaurants who will continue to have people come, you know, the, the, the bit that will come back is them is customers coming back into their restaurants. Um, but if you think about the frequency at which you visit a normal restaurant, even your favorite restaurant, I bet you don't go more than once or twice a year. Whereas, you know, as a grocer, I'm used to people coming back in every few days. So uh, I think I think you know any any additional business that you can get on top of that once or twice a year visit will be will be genuinely incremental. So I think hospitality will will come out of this actually um, a different uh, a different industry. It's obviously going to be smaller, but it's going to be um, vibrant. And I think you know we'll continue to see all the innovation and 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 the, and the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that we've seen um, come out in this last twelve months. I think food retail obviously it has had a very buoyant year if you take mainstream grocery. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, I, I know how it looks, uh, how it feels when you're, you know, staring into a sea of red rather than a sea of green, which they'll all start to now appreciate given that this time last year we were just entering lockdown one and all the panic buying and everything else that, that was going on, you know, there will have to be some responses. Um, and clearly not all of that at home consumption and, and, and purchase will continue and there will be some meal replacement going, going back into hospitality. So that's going to be interesting as to, as to certainly um, the, the, the mainstream grocery industry and how it responds and what innovations it brings to try and deal with that. Because let's face it, on one level, they've had it easy um, for a year and I think it, it's going to be um, a much more challenging year um, coming coming forwards. Having said that, those who have adapted to um, uh, much more uh, of an online presence and you know and, and have managed to build capacity quickly and you know and 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 broadly the big four have, I think that will serve them well and I think that online channel will continue to perform um, very well. And I'm assuming that some of the 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 speciality trade that's also been built, built alongside that will continue to perform well. When I, when I was at Harrods, some of the some of the things I, I did before I left were were around um, building partnerships on the with hospitality, with Deliveroo, and with Supper in in, in Central London. But also we put um, Harrods into Ocado for, for the first time as well, um, with a view to you know the future. You know, not just not just for COVID, but for for a long term. A partnership which hopefully you know will 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 pay off so i th i think um i think that channel shift is is here to stay I, I can't see it all drifting back i think if anything offline shopping in supermarket environment um will be the bit that that then struggles a little whether we see any main shift from big store to small store whether we see um continued you know discounted growth versus premium, I don't know. And I think that's all, all to play for, really. Fantastic. And, and we'll actually get an opportunity to dive into some of what you've talked about in a little bit more detail when we talk about your articles as well. The pick list, of course, is all about highlighting interesting articles about food and drinks. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits as well. How do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What publications do you read on a regular basis? So the, the honest answer is I don't, I think I only, I only read one offline publication at all now, which is the Weekend FT, which I got on a Saturday, but it lasts me all, it does last me all weekend. Um, and I don't buy a paper, I don't subscribe to any magazines, I don't buy anything um, really. I, I consume huge amounts of news, but it's all through feeds of various sorts, whether that's LinkedIn, whether that's Apple News, whether it's Twitter, you know, it's just it's just coming at me all the time. Um, I definitely enjoy um, a number of different newsletters and sort of you know curated news, I suppose, in in various forms. Also, it's worth saying that I am probably more fascinated these days by Silicon Valley and everything tech 
than I am necessarily everything food or retail. But I, you know, traditionally would have been much more food and retail only. But but tech tech news is is quite important to me now as well. So it's kind of a it's 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 a it's a it's a bit of shifting sands in terms of what I actually read. Excellent. All right. Tell us about your first article pick for us. So my first article is is a pretty straightforward news article from Sky News, um, which um, the headlines Cabriona Mondelez takes a two hundred million pound bite of healthy snack maker grenade. Um, and it's the story of um, Cabri's um, acquisition of, of grenade, um, which was obviously announced this week. Um, and I suppose it, it, it fascinated me for a, a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, the, the number 200 million, which is, is fascinating in itself because um, it's a significantly higher number than I think a lot of people would have assumed that business would sell for. I mean, certainly their last um, uh, set of accounts, um, they were making a profit of 5 million off a turnover of 50. So it's a 40 times multiple of, of profit, four times multiple of sales. You know, th those are significant. Now, to be fair, I think there's a story behind that, which is probably around their, their, their 2020 and how 2020 has gone for them. And I'm assuming that it's gone quite well. And and grenade for the for everybody who possibly doesn't know the business that well is is primarily driven by um, uh, protein and its um, protein uh, bars and shakes and energy drinks so sort of sports nutrition and that, and and it's a, a brand which I think is fascinating because it's kind of it, it grew by stealth for a long time I don't think it was mainstream at all. For a long time, its biggest channel was actually Amazon, not even just its own online B2C. It was all about Amazon. Um, and then it suddenly sort of appeared on everybody's shelves as well and suddenly become a big thing. You know, it's one of those overnight successes, which was, was 20 years in the making, but, but actually, you know, has, has sort of crept up on us. And I suppose it's it's fascinating that they've chosen this moment to sell. I mean, for they've had various... Um, uh, moments in the past where they've had investment from private equity, so it's private equity backed line capital. Um, I think back in 2017. Equally fascinating is the fact it's Mondelez. Mondelez's last acquisition in the UK was Cadbury's, which was in 2009, 2010. Probably, you know, the the very year that Grenade started was the last time Cadbury's went into the market with M&A. So, uh, that, sorry, that Mondelez went into the market for M&A. So. It's an interesting story of big food, you know, global food giant buying small British challenger brand, you know, and interestingly, we've seen it in the last couple of years, quite a few times now, PepsiCo buying Piper's Crisps, we've seen um, Barilla buying um, Pastor Evangelists recently, Nestle um, uh, buying uh, Mindful Chef, you know, we've got this sort of pattern of, of British startup challenger um, being acquired by global um, uh, food businesses. So I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think also from a consumer and behavioral perspective, if Grenade have had a great year, it's partly on the back of exercise trends and health and leisure within the home. It's partly because they were well placed to sell on subscription and to sell and to create impulse in the home. So it's a category, it's a brand that you kind of associate with an impulse category and an impulse has obviously had a difficult year. And I think for Grenade, clearly their channel strategy has finally paid off. It's kind of almost like, reluctant to say, but COVID was made for them. It was something that they would they would always benefit in, in, in this period. So for all those reasons, I just think it's a, it's a really interesting story. I thought it was fascinating and I, I was, couldn't wait to get your take on it, Chris, because I thought, I, I wonder wonder what your thoughts are. And I guess when I read it, I thought oh, a couple of things. That, is the FMCG market always going to consolidate? Is it always the case, you know, when you, when you set up one of these brands, is it the dream, you know, 20 years down the line, you'll get a sale for 250 million because it, it, it sounds amazing. And then the flip side of that is, the, the likes of Mondelez and Cadbury's, does it allow them to play more in the D2C space? We've seen them doing more of this, but as you say, that's where Grenade started. Does that allow them to, I guess, trial new tech with a ready-made market when they're traditionally in a in a retail arena? Do you think it will flex their, excuse the pun, their muscle in a different space? 
I think so. I think it works both ways for them as well, because if you think about it, Grenade, Grenade probably hasn't got the full distribution it deserves in, in mainstream grocery. And clearly, Wanderlust can, despite the fact that will, you know, there'll be lots of talk of it remaining independent and, and, and not part of, you know, you can imagine that, that at some point in the future, Wanderlust um, account manager will be representing both Grenade and Cadbury's. So, you know, that, 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 you know, and actually, if you go back, way back in time, Green and Blacks was, was the first example of this, and that was a Cadbury acquisition in its day, you know, and ultimately it benefited from that mainstream grocery distribution. So I think there's, I think there's a positive synergy from, from having a, a, a big player partner who's got the relationships and clearly in the right categories um, to a certain extent as well. But I also agree, I think, I think D2C is becoming more important for, for, for mainstream big FMCG. And they need to understand it. And the best way of understanding it is to acquire it. I also think it's a real vote of confidence for the protein trend, because, you know, that made such waves a few years ago. And it feels like it's been overshadowed a little bit more recently. You know, we've obviously heard a lot about plant-based protein, but that sort of core protein product, it feels like, the, you know, NPD and, and just general attention has sort of um, diminished a little bit. Um, I think a, a really sizable deal like this, and particularly big player like like Cadbury, like Mondelez is getting involved here, shows that there's clearly loads of, of potential left and loads of room for growth left as well in pushing these products further into the mainstream. I think the interesting one is the low sugar dimension as well, because they definitely trade off low sugar. And I think low sugar is an increasingly important element alongside protein. So it's how do you, you know, it's the carb element as much as the protein element. So whilst it is pro, very pro, pro protein, it's also very low carb and it's, it's driving uh, uh, both at the same time. Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from the FT and it's an article titled Change of Menu, Kraft Heinz Bets on Old Brands to Win New Consumers. This continues the theme a little bit around big brands, big multinationals looking to reinvent themselves and it's about a significant change in strategy for Kraft Heinz. To date, their strategy has been to use big acquisitions, big ticket M&A as a way to drive growth and transformation. Um, if you think back to their attempt to buy Unilever four years ago, that was essentially that strategy taking, uh, taken to its logical conclusion, if, if you will. Now they want to change tack and they want to focus on organic growth. And instead of buying in that growth, buying in that transformation through M&A, they say they want to change their products, their brands, their company and find new growth that way. So it's a big change in direction and it's a big job for Miguel Patricio, who's the Kraft Heinz CEO. He's quoted in this article and he talks about, of course, how this is a change in direction that was very closely coordinated with 3G, the key investor in Kraft Heinz as well. So what does this new organic growth strategy look like? In essence, they're going to try and do a much better job of going after some of the consumer trends we've already touched on. So health, more natural ingredients, functional ingredients, sustainability, those big trends that everyone in FMCG talks about all the time, but which... Heinz has sort of dabbled in, but hasn't really cracked yet at scale. And again, I suppose the obvious comparison here is Unilever once again, but also Nestle. Companies that are really investing in those areas that talk a lot about their commitment to uh, making healthy changes, uh, their commitments to sustainability. They've invested in plant-based, etc., etc., etc. So there's quite a bit of catching up to do for Kraft, uh, for Kraft Heinz in these areas, and it sounds like that's where they will be focusing a lot of their efforts. Patricio talks about making products cleaner and greener, which about sums up uh, what this new strategy is all about. More generally, they are also upping budgets for research and development and for marketing. Those budgets have been uh, slashed previously as part of cost-cutting measures, but uh, they are now being increased again. And Kraft Heinz is able to do all this because it's in a better position now than it has been for a while. It's had a good pandemic. Sales did well. Uh, it's also recently sold off some brands, uh, which means it's been able to pay off some of its debt. And there's just generally more breathing space here to try new ideas and a different approach. 
But as the article points out, of course, there will be quite a few grocery brands that have had a good pandemic and they will all be looking to now hold on to those new customers and maintain some of that growth into 2021 and beyond. So competition will be intense. There will be a lot of brands upping their marketing and advertising spend. And so I think it's going to be fascinating to see a what we can expect in terms of actual NPD, new marketing, new messaging coming out of Kraft Heinz as a result of this new uh, strategy. But also who of the big grocery brands will ultimately succeed in maintaining some of that extraordinary growth that we've seen over the past 12 months? Who will actually manage to hold on to some of these new customers that they've acquired over the past year? Chris, what did you make of it? First of all, I think it's a great article. I mean, it's actually quite a long article. There's quite a lot in it, and it's and it's really informative. I mean, I've followed the 3G story for for many years, and I think um, there's some interesting um, interesting dilemmas that they're facing. And I think it's primarily because 3G as a as a as a private equity investor have come. You know, the, the, their background is is in in essence AB InBev, so it's it's the beer industry. And they they went through the beer industry like a dose of salts in terms of making acquisition after acquisition after acquisition. Lots of um, uh, both family businesses and private businesses that they were able to buy in and transform. And they transformed them in a very sort of formulaic way. So 3G are very um, driven by um, metocracy in the sense that they give young, um, hardworking, dynamic um, people in their business, lots of leadership and autonomy at an early stage in their careers, and you know, very, very good at, uh, at promoting quickly, and heavily incentivize their teams to, to deliver growth. Um, they're very keen to simplify everything and make it as as easy as possible to to, to make change and 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 use simplicity as a as a as a strong and important tenet. Um, and then there is this sort of obsession with cost cutting, and I think the cost cutting is what's actually um, serve them badly with 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 Kraft Heinz, and I think what you know the, wonderfully. Um, uh, George Lemon, their their um, chief exec, talks about costs are like toenails; they need constantly clipping. So it's just like that sort of notion that they just see it in such a way. Um, and I think this is a great example of of um, you can't cut your way to greatness. You know, this is a business. Unlike the beer industry, by the way, and I think there's genuine, I think food is different to, to drinks in this. Beer is 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 primarily, a, uh, there's a couple of usage, uh, there's obviously occasions around which one might sell beer and market beer, but actually you then simply have the tiering um, around good, better, best, and in principle, each each beer falls into one of those buckets and and then, you know, here's a program, here's, what, here's your marketing plan, go off and do it. And by the way, here's how you could cut your production costs. It's a relatively easy business to deliver. Food is not like that. And I think across lots of different categories, uh, you know, and, and Kraft Heinz has, has multi-category presence, you know, you, it, it's just more complicated and, and it takes um, a, a much more of a surgeon's knife approach. And I think that the big danger in cost cutting in a lot of food businesses is that you, you, you basically cut the, 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 you know, to mix my metaphors, you, you cut the hand that feeds you. And, and you miss the opportunity to invest, particularly around marketing and, and particularly about, about those costs which genuinely differentiate you in, in the market. It sounds like all that's about to change and it sounds like they're back on the right track. And certainly strategically, it made loads of sense to me to, to be doing the things they're doing. Um, and, you know, we've seen little examples of it. I don't know whether you saw the, the, the Heinz tomato ketchup advertising during lockdown around the, the billboards and people drawing their own ketchup bottles and how the fact that always turned out to be Heinz, you know, really clever and, and brilliantly executed in social media, et cetera. So I, I think they're on their way back. I just, I just think that it's, it's a sign of, of a PE house um, sort of culturally driving the wrong out outcomes um, because of almost because of the history of, of, of the category that they've, they've, they've grown up in. Laura, what's your first pick for us? 
My first pick this week is from the Sunday Times and it's a piece by James Timpson and I think this is my second pick of James Timpson over the history of the pick list so I'm sorry about that but I just love his pieces and this one's entitled uh, Meet My Secret Weapon, A Director of Happiness. Um, and as you know I'm a big fan of a CEO think piece because you always get a couple of nuggets about you know how the business operates that you wouldn't normally see and James's pieces are, are normally pretty authentic and, and this one I, I would book it as such. So um, he talks a little bit about the business and uh, and they've got just over 2,000 stores which is uh, a bit bigger than I anticipated actually and he talks about how their business trends uh, when it's raining sales go up of course they do because you want to get your shoes repaired and when it's the sun shining uh, uh, shoe repairs go down because they don't repair flip-flops which I, I really like that comment and I thought yeah I didn't really think about that and then when the kids go back at, back to school their key cutting business goes through the roof and, and, and business is busy. He then goes on to talk about um, how he keeps a, a, a strong commercial eye on sales, of course he does, but 90% of the time when sales are dropping in a, in a certain store, that's actually down to the colleague uh, that's running that store, and it's normally a problem away from work, and uh, Timson's trying to step in and, and trying to try to help, and this is how the, the article then goes on to talk about this director of happiness. He talks about um, the potential about being a backlog of issues uh, due to the COVID and the importance of a caring culture for an organisation and what he's trying to embed in his organisation. So every Monday he gets a confidential list of colleagues of concern, which I thought was fascinating, and they're grouped into three areas mental health, physical health or money problems and then he goes on to say they tackle these issues through three secret weapons and this was a particular bit I really liked and these three secret weapons are Elaine, Marion and Janet and I just liked how it was so humanised because normally from a, a big corporate you would say you know we've got this department and this department but he, he talks in first name terms, Elaine's a counsellor, Marion's a, a um, financial health specialist and Janet is the said director of happiness. She helps colleagues that are in crisis to get support and that can be anything from the example in the article from helping a, a colleague with a funeral and clearing his mum's house through to a colleague that's just come out of prison and Timpsons are quite renowned for uh, recruiting folks that have recently come out of prison and James Timpsons a big ambassador in that space. Um, he then goes on to talk about care for people um, on the payroll is essential and profits will follow and I just really like this whole caring culture because I think sometimes we think they are uh, they aren't mutually exclusive to be focusing on profit and caring for your people and I guess the, the other thing I just wanted to mention um, within this I was chatting to a, a CEO of a process, meat processor yesterday and he was telling me they're, they're a big PLC and um, that they'd offered a financial scheme to their employees coming out of COVID and did they need any extra financial support? And he said about 15% of his huge workforce were taking that up and how important it was for organisations to step into a space that they probably wouldn't his historically do. What are your thoughts and will this become more important over time? Well, so first of all, just a massive fan of James Simpson and, and his father and, and Simpsons as a business. And, you know, so many lessons in that in that business um, to, to learn from. Um, I always loved the quote that um, uh, they only had two rules is look the part and keep your hands out of the till. And I just thought for a retailer, that was just about all you probably do need if you're going to pair it right back down. Um, you know, and again, a business that you know, gives gives great autonomy and and works on some fairly simple. I suspect, if I'm honest, that James doesn't get many more reports on a on a weekly basis than the ones he mentions in the article. It's it's run on a sort of minimal basis, and he doesn't believe in centralising anything. You know, it all happens in the stores, and he's out in the stores all all week. So, you know, every as you say, everything he said is almost certainly authentic and and, and genuinely. What he does care about and he comes from a very caring family and is, has got a, a, a whole approach look i'm a massive supporter i'd never heard of these it, it, it described in the way that he has but you know if i go back in time and think about how that might have worked in the various businesses i've been in i think it absolutely plays out i think you know interestingly financial health does 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 cause issues and and for a lot of employees who are often on minimum wage or close to minimum wage in retail it, it's a it's a genuine struggle and and finding ways of helping them um is is part of the the, the organization's um challenge um i've as a i i think it's i think it's hugely important i think it's interesting 
that you can take the view that it's you know it is well-being and happiness and that that if you if you put employees first ultimately they're the ones that that want to serve customers and and you know happy healthy you know undistracted um, teams of people who want to work together and and want to serve customers well are always going to make great service colleagues and and so from a retailer's point of view it feels very natural I think it's really interesting how that plays out in a in a production facility and how that is in a very different environment where you might not necessarily have to put on a, a brave face every day in quite the same way but equally the impact you have on your fellow colleagues can be quite high so I think there is a contrast you know if you're if you're customer facing it's one thing if you're not how does that work and I, I'm, I'm making the assumption that that it's just equally important for, but for different reasons. I was also really interested to read about this concept of a director of happiness because I think it starts to move us away from crisis response when it comes to mental health and well-being and to more preventative approaches. So I feel like the debate and, and general awareness around mental health has, has improved dramatically and the idea that companies, that employers should offer assistance and be supportive when someone has a mental health crisis or a problem, I think is fairly well established now. But there still seems to be that gap that when it comes to physical health, of course, we have a subsidised gym membership. Of course, if I'm getting RSI strain, I get a different mouse from the IT department. It's no big thing. There's a sort of understanding that maintaining um, good physical health is, is definitely something that, that an employer should help employer, employees with as well. I don't see that quite yet playing out with a mental health and mental well-being approach and I'd be really interested to see what that might look like you know where you're not just get you know jumping uh, into action the minute there's someone in crisis but you're actually thinking about how you can contribute to to good mental health and well-being on an ongoing basis. And I, I agree and I think that preventative piece is, is definitely missing and I this is the first time I've heard of it done in, in this way and I think it sounds like a great way to deliver it. Um, it has to be said, I, when I was at Harrods, that the, the occupational health support that is in place at Harrods has a very strong um, mental health dimension to it. And I think actually increasingly there are teams out there and businesses that, that take it very seriously and, and invest a great deal in. Um, although I would, I would say that is still relatively crisis based, um, but it's definitely there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, sure, it's, I'm sure it's happening a, a, across the space. Chris, tell us about your second pick for us. So my second pick's from the from the Guardian, um, and uh, the headline is simply "Meet the New Breed of Work from Home Chefs." So um, this is an article which picks up on a, a stat from the Food Standards Agency, which is forty percent of all new ventures in the last twelve months that have been registered with the FSA are basically based in domestic kitchens which is an extraordinary stat in itself and, and, and really fascinating. And then the article really goes on to talk about um, the fact that quite a lot of businesses are now um, obviously starting in domestic kitchens and there are a number of different platforms that have been built um, as marketplaces for them. Um, and then also that um, uh, it, it, it literally goes on to describe three of those um, specific um, businesses and goes into a great deal of depth. I mean, I was interested in, in just the notion of it. And it's really interesting because this cropped up at home the other day and, and, and my wife mentioned to me, oh, there's all these businesses that are, have been started in kitchens. And I was, you know, outraged initially, you know, how, you know, what about HACCP? What about the technical, you know, what about the, the food safety culture, which is so obviously important in, in any manufacturing situation, how could this possibly be? And it was great to read, actually, that there's been some genuinely pragmatic support given to make sure that the food that they're selling is, is safe and, and, and clearly that, that matters enormously, but also that you've got these incredibly entrepreneurial um, uh, driven individuals, uh, often from chef backgrounds, but not always, um, uh, just finding wonderful gaps in the market like you know super premium luxury kebabs is one of one of the producers which sounded amazing i have to say um and the fact that they're finding ways of of of, of getting reaching direct to consumers primarily through social channels but also through these new evolving marketplaces the marketplaces themselves the platforms were 
were quite sort of localized. So there was, I think there was one in Bristol, there was one in Watford, there was one in Northampton. You know, these weren't um, just all central London or, or big city um, marketplaces. And, you know, I love the whole notion of these sort of side hustles that are going on where people are having to, you know, do a day job as well as, as make, make food and then sell it. And, you know, again, goes back to this sort of spirit of entrepreneurialism that's come out of a, a mixture of hospitality and food production um, during COVID. And I, and, I, and I just thought it was, again, um, uh, quite an uplifting article about food entrepreneurs um, finding a way through. I felt the same about what about HACCP. That was my first <laughs> first thought of what about food safety? Uh, and then my second thought was, um, I guess over the years, retailers have followed food service for trends, haven't they? And, you know, you do a street food safari to check out what was happening in central London to, and then bring those trends uh, into supermarkets the, the following year or so through MPD. Uh, and I thought, is this potentially the new street food? We've talked about street food for so long, but now, as you say, these amazing entrepreneurs finding categories and flavours that probably you wouldn't be able to find elsewhere could actually build brands and influence retail in the long term as well, maybe. And there's, and there's a, again, going back to sort of some of the, the, the startup culture in, in, in Silicon Valley, there's this whole notion of, of do things that don't scale and make something that people want as two really strong tenets, which is make something that people want is try out lots of different things until you get to the thing that they want and then make that. Don't think that you know best. And, I, you know, domestic kitchen is by far the very best way of experimenting with finding out what people want. If you can, you, know, you could change your menu every week and realize ultimately that they're actually what the people really want is this. Um, and likewise, doing things that don't scale is all about just saying accepting to begin with that you're constrained with your production. You can only do so many, um, but but you you find a hundred people that love you and then and then find a way of scaling it you know and scaling it could be a street food van it could be a small industrial unit it could be you know it could be it could be a shared kitchen somewhere it could be a dark kitchen somewhere you know there, there are obvious steps um, for, from domestic kitchen upwards so my view is that it's it's going to be a hotbed it, to your point Laura it's going to be a hot point a hotbed of, of, of new MPD and you know who knows what will come out of it I'm so interested in your perspective as, as someone who advises and invests in in uh, in startups as well. Um, this idea that you know don't do things that scale, but I suppose there will be a lot of people who've started a side hustle who at some point do want to sort of scale and and do want to see whether they're ready to to take things to to another level and uh, perhaps bring someone like you on board. When you are looking at startups whether it's in hospitality or it's in in food retail what do you look for to determine whether this is a business that's perfect for the home kitchen and should stay at that or whether it's ready to take that next step I mean I, I, I think everything's about traction so if, if you can demonstrate and it doesn't have to be sales traction it can be it can it can be literally Instagram followers it can be anything if you can show that you've attracted a growing number of, of fans of some sort in some way, you know, preferably by selling them things that they like, that they want to come back for, you know, and preferably that they're engaging with the product and they're sharing it with friends and there's word of mouth, you know, there's all those elements. I just think that that is so much more a sign of potential success. The things that are already on a roll, even if it's a relatively early stage, I think are, 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 are obvious candidates for investment. Clearly, the individuals concerned also make a huge difference. So if, if I was going to look for two things, it would be a, um, a, a business or an, a, you know, a, a product or an idea that has already demonstrated real genuine traction. And I can see, I can see a chart that's going like that. It, it's almost you know, irrelevant what it is. Um, and then, and then on, alongside that is someone who is cockroach-like in their ability to survive resilience is everything for entrepreneurs they need to keep going and show me that you've kept going despite everything and that's someone you know it's not about having come out of big organizations it's not about necessarily having worked in small organizations it's not necessarily about being financially astute or commercially astute or a great marketeer or a great you know um a, a person on on camera or any of those things it's about show me that you can survive julia what's your second pick this week 
My second pick this week is from Gizmodo, and it's an article titled, This Mars Bar Rover Will Chase You Around a Store and Tempt You to Buy Candy. Now, if you're into your retail tech, or you're into confectionery brands, or retail tech used by confectionery brands, then you will know about this already, because news of this was announced about a month ago. I didn't see it at the time, and when it was picked up by Gizmodo this week, I thought, this is absolutely fascinating, and I need to talk to you both about it. So, here we go. Basically, what we're looking at is an autonomous robot called Smiley, developed by Mars Wrigley, which is currently being trialed in the US with ShopRite, the retailer, um, currently in one store, but with the potential for more, of course, if these trials prove successful. Smiley looks like a little caddy, and it's loaded with Mars products. So in the video shown in the article, it's M&Ms, Skittles, Snickers, as well as gum products like Orbit. And it basically whizzes around the shop floor. And if a shopper gets within four feet of this little caddy, it starts trying to sell you stuff. So there are sounds and notices on its display to engage shoppers and, of course, ultimately get them to put some of these products into their baskets. It also uses some really clever sensors to detect people and objects and motion so it's able to navigate around stores safely and without bumping into other fixtures or shoppers. And all of this is part of Mars's efforts to better understand the potential of robotics in retail, but also to explore what's going to happen with impulse purchases in the future. And Chris mentioned this early on, Impulse buying, of course, has had a particularly tough time during COVID, um, so there's a lot of interest in looking at how you can reinvigorate some of these categories. Now, I think this particular approach is fascinating and disturbing at the same time, and it raises so many questions for me, not least because you do wonder whether shoppers are going to be happy to be stalked like this on their shopping trips. Um, I can't quite get my head around the shopper benefit here quite yet. Um, I can certainly see why this would appeal to a brand owner. But what am I getting out of this as a shopper, other than potentially being tempted to impulse buy products that I was perhaps trying very hard to avoid whilst uh, wandering the aisles? And I do think perhaps part of my caution here is because this happens to be a trial run uh, by a confectionery uh, company, and these uh, caddies are, in this particular instance, offering by and large, confectionery products. You know, if this were a, a little robot stacked with fruit and veg, reminding everyone to get their five a day, then perhaps I'd feel a little bit differently about this. Um, so is it the fact here that this is tempting shoppers to, to buy something that's uh, quote-unquote unhealthy, that, that's the issue here? Um, and certainly, I think based on the discussions we're having in this country about obesity and what's happened with guilt lanes in stores, uh, you would think that it'd be pretty difficult to do something like this in the UK at the moment. Chris, what did you make of it? And could you see something like this ever working in a UK supermarket? I only have three words to say. <laughs> I hate robots. I can't imagine any worse thing than what they've invented. I mean, it's just, yeah, total gimmick. Can't imagine it will get beyond the one store trial. Um, technology for technology's sake, all, all, all the things that you would absolutely not want as a retailer. It's disruptive for customer journeys. It's, it's, it's sort of like weird reversal of pester power. It's kind of like, you know, here's, here's a robot that's gonna pester you to buy something from it. All, all wrong. Um, not, not customer centric. Very brand centric, as you, as you say. I don't think um, there's any shopper benefits at all, um, and they would um, obviously not have been allowed in any of the shops I've ever run, um, based on my opinions. I mean, I, 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 I've always been quite sceptical about about customer fronting technology. If it, and unless it delivers really clear, obvious benefits, like speeds up a transaction or, or, or genuinely helps and supports um, customers in, in finding what they're looking for, whatever, whatever that is, just hate the idea of, 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 of taking input. You know, as you said, quite rightly, that, you know, we've, we've spent decades sorting out, um, you know, uh, confectionery on checkouts, um, in, in, in aisle confectionery, removing pester power, taking things off bottom shelves, doing all the things that you would hope we responsible retailers would do. 
um, in order for a big confectionery brand to come back in with with something like this. So um, it's it's a bit of a thumbs down from me. I, I, you, you can probably tell. This is the last thing I need because I'm sh- such a sugar addict anyway. And as you say, Julia, I need one chasing me around with some fruit and veg in to make <laughs> sure I'm getting that in my basket, let, let alone uh, chocolate. The only other execution I thought for this is hospitality and maybe, you know, big sporting events and that sort of thing. I don't, it'll need to be able to get up and down steps. That's the only challenge. But when you're thinking about particularly the Americans and you're having your hot dog whilst you're watching the baseball, American football, this is perfect. And I guess, would would a robot be easier for that, those sort of things rather than having people in that, in that game? But yeah, I, I don't need anything chasing me around with chocolate. I'll be in major trouble. Laura, tell us about your second pick. Uh, my second pick this week's from the BBC and it's got the headline, I'll buy five and only keep one. Uh, and this is about clothes retailing online. And uh, unsurprisingly, it's uh, resonated with me as I, I don't hide very well that... that um, Going shopping's a bit of a hobby for me because I'm a retail geek and I like seeing what everybody's up to, not only in, in the food market, but also uh, in, in, in clothes retail. So the article talks about uh, what's been happening. Unsurprisingly, we, we know the market's up by a third. Um, and it gives some uh, great examples of how people are, are buying more and more clothes online. And uh, one of the sound bites in the article talks about boredom fueling online sales. Uh, and, uh, and a lady quoted says, I surf the John Lewis website like other others surf the news sites and I have to admit I really fall into that category I think I'll just just have a look and see what's on there um there's a talk about uh, the five packages said headline and sending them back and actually not paying so many of uh, these retailers have free delivery free returns um and yes we're more likely to return online I was surprised the stat in the article says about a third of the uh, clothes bought online are returned sorry a quarter of the uh, clothes bought online are returned I thought it'd be much higher than that, and that compares within store returns of around about 10%. There's also some good uh, quotes from Mintel saying that the youngers try, buy, and return, and they're saying that folks between about 16 and 34 have a, a 60% uh, rate of more returns that, that, than other shoppers. I guess it's something I've noticed uh, more recently, particularly over the last 12 months, it's harder to return stuff. Back in the day, you used to be able, you used to get a self-adhesive label and it was all, all easy. Now you need to go online for a lot of retailers and say what you're returning, print off the label yourself. So th- there's a few more barriers naturally put in there. And the article touches on this, particularly in the sustainability piece. It's so really interesting. And as I say, it does resonate with me. I currently, I have to admit, I've got a growing parcel down uh, growing pile of parcels downstairs that, that I need to return to the post office at the weekend I'm on first name terms with the lady at the post office counter on a Sunday afternoon I think she pretty much hates me uh, but I don't know where does this take us into your earlier point Chris at the beginning of the show about trends sticking will we just get used to this or will we realize you know because of sustainability because of carbon neutral and the push towards that for 2050 that we can't be just having stuff shipped to us all week and then returning it all on a weekend and the the big retailers are going to have to step up and put some barriers in place yeah so i think i think this is a trend which has been around for some time so if anything i think yeah i mean definitely during pandemic it's been it's 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 been emphasized however you know talking to people in in the fashion world prior to, to to covid i think it's it's always been a major issue for them. And it's driven by a number of things. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, quite a lot of this is around the, the issue around size and, and people just, tr- you know, typically taking three sizes of the same um, a garment as, as a way of just trying on. And obviously, if you've not got changing facilities and you're not in a shop, you can't do that. So it's just, you know, it's a genuine need for consumers. And, and the fact that everybody, and there is no genuine standard sizing just means that it's difficult for you to know. So unless you're a regular shopper and you know exactly what your size is with that particular store or that particular brand, um, it's always going to be a problem. So that that's definitely a, a problem. I think also, interestingly, as a retailer, whilst there is the obvious financial impact, and by the way, you're right, it, it, it is, you know, certainly I, I'm pretty sure ASOS have been on record in the past saying that it, it can be up to 60% return. So it can go really, really high. Um, there's, there's, there's a whole issue around the financial impact of, of, of just having um, to, to pay for the service effectively. 
Um, actually, the bigger issue, I think, for a lot of retailers is the inventory issue it causes and the process problems it drives. So from an inventory point of view, you're effectively allowed, you know, it's, it's, it's removing the availability of that garment from your inventory for an indefinite amount of time, although constrained, you know, by 20 days, 30 days, whatever the return period is. But in essence, you've no idea when it's going to come back in. Um, and it's only then that you are able to put it back into the system and have any hope of reselling it. And I once spent an, a fascinating afternoon with Simon Wilson at Next, shadowing him um, uh, when he was when he literally process mapped all their returns um, at Next. This was you know, this a good ten years ago. Um, and you know the and his his point was he wanted someone to be able to buy online. Um, return into a small next store somewhere that didn't stock the product and for that product to appear back into the mainstream next inventory that would then be effectively available within a large next store that did stock the product within like three days and how can we do this and it was really you know process mapping the whole thing and, and really getting into it and I think you know that that's all the business issue is is massive for, for fashion and this year particularly given that everyone sat on huge amounts of inventory and huge amounts of, of unsold products will just mean that it will get worse and worse. And from, from a trend point of view, I just don't see it, it, it improving. Um, as you say, I think the only way of managing it is to bring in more and more barriers, make it more difficult. Um, uh, but it, ultimately, the only way of, of, of genuinely sorting it out is, is, a, is a combination of, of standardizing sizes and, um, and then finding ways of, of demonstrating the product online well enough that people can make those decisions online and, and, and believe in them and not have to return. I thought it was so interesting what you were saying about finding technology perhaps that can help demonstrate how garments actually fit alongside greater standardization. It's interesting to see that Snap, the parent company of Snapchat, they've just acquired a startup that specializes in uh, sort of virtual reality, augmented reality, um, trying on technology, essentially, that's, uh, that, that tries to do exactly that. And as Snapchat, which obviously has a, a history and, and a lot of expertise around augmented and virtual reality lenses, as they're pushing further into e-commerce, They've clearly identified this as one of the pain points that they're potentially in a, in a position to, to solve. So I'll be very interested to see what they actually do with that and how they, how they deploy that. Because I think if you can get that technology to be reliable and actually work and actually help you make um, better decisions in terms of sizing and fit, I think that could be a, that could be a game changer. I agree. I think the augmented reality is, is an obvious route out. And I think they're the, they're the sorts of things that are going to have to change. Chris, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. My pleasure. It's been really interesting. Thank you both. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.